0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have five new movies to review for you. Two of them are brand new, they hit theaters on August 12th, 2022, and the other three are movies that have come out on their respective platforms within the last month or so. So it's part me playing catch-up, and I'm going to have to play catch-up next week too because there are a lot of movies that hit theaters that I did not get the chance to see in the limited time between when the movies came out or when I was able to see them, and when I'm able to sit down and do this show right here. So let's get into the newest films. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Fall. And this is a clincher if there ever was one. It is about two best friends by the name of Becky and Hunter, and they're both uh, women by the way, who find themselves at the top of a 2,000 foot radio tower in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the California desert. Why are they up there? Well, Hunter, uh, who is played by Virginia Gardner, is a a social media influencer who also performs death-defying stunts. And because she performs death-defying stunts, she has a devoted following. And she drags her friend Becky with her. Becky is played by Grace Caroline Curry, also a very talented young actress, who is dealing with both the death of her husband and also her strained relationship with her father, James, who's played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And apparently you learn that the two girls, Hunter and Becky, used to go on these expeditions where they'd climb to dizzying heights and also entertain their social media followers, I guess, if they are able to get a reception from that high and Hunter brings grieving Becky with her up to the top of this radio tower. And when they reach nearly the top, the very top would be the light bulb, but the, the top at which, you know, you're able to get by a ladder, they get up there and they're at first snapping a lot of pictures and taking a lot of videos, but then as they're getting down, the ladder breaks. So they are trapped up on this uh, radio or TV tower and with very slim chances of anyone even discovering them. And thinking about this premise immediately makes my palms sweat Uh, My palms are sweating right now. As I was watching the film, and this film was uh, filmed with IMAX cameras, but I saw it in regular definition, but that was enough for me. I had to, as I was watching the film, keep reminding myself that I was on solid ground. I felt terrible for these ladies, but at the same time, even if they are doing these stunts where they climb the top of a very, very high uh, TV tower, which Hunter, the character says is taller than the Eiffel tower in Paris. Although I somehow doubt that it just, Oh God, why would people do that? Why do people do that? I I, I just don't know. And I found myself as I was watching the film swearing up a storm. And I'm very actually surprised that the women in this movie, especially the grieving Becky, didn't swear as much as I was swearing watching them. But as it turns out, initially, the ru- the first cut of Fall, which was intended to be released in theaters, included about 30 F-words. But the movie makers decided to, through editing, cut those F-words down to one F-word to make it go from R to PG-13 so people of all ages could see it. And I guess that was a good move in terms of making, uh, this film making as much money as possible, but rest assured, if somebody were to convince me to climb a TV tower that high, it doesn't matter how sturdy the ladder is. And I would probably be thinking of the worst case scenarios, including the ladder breaking, but rest assured, I would probably be swearing five times that much. I I think even Joe Pesci would have nothing on me because I hate heights. It doesn't even matter how secure the building I'm in. If I'm, you know, at the top of the Sears Tower, for example, oh God, I can't look down. Even if I'm on solid ground, I would just get nauseous at best and just absolutely crawling into a fetal position, terrified at worst. So yeah, there is no way you'd be able to get me to climb this dizzying height. Even if the ladder was sturdy. Having said that, my eyes were on the screen the entire time and my palms, as I said, were sweating profusely. In fact, after the movie ended, I got up from my seat and saw my ticket stub and it was completely covered in my sweat. It's a good thing I don't save those. I immediately throw them uh, away afterwards, but good God. That is how much my palms were sweating as I was watching this film. So how is it as a film? Well, it is thrilling. There's no doubt about that. It's incredibly well shot. In fact, some of the panoramic views of the two girls on top of this radio tower are mesmerizing as well as thrilling. And I gotta give these actors a lot of credit. They absolutely had me convinced that they were on top of this tower. Were they actually? I don't exactly know. Uh, But I was also thinking that they might, well, every single effort they make to try to signal people for help using their technology, was, I would say, probably understandable given the fact that they are at a dizzying height above the ground. They only have so much room to sit and also coordinate themselves. But I would imagine that if you were climbing an abandoned tower like this, you would take the necessary precautions in case something really bad happened. For example, you would probably tell people you love where you're going to be and if they can't if they don't hear from you in 48 hours, they should call the police. That is something that would be very understandable to do. But I guess if they took those precautions, we wouldn't have the thrilling movie that we we did. One of my biggest problems with the movie was the very very end the way that the situation resolved itself, or maybe didn't. I'm not going to tell you whether or not it did, but it felt like the movie took some shortcuts in terms of how things resolved. I I would have liked to have seen more towards the end, but 90% of the film I really got behind. So it may not be my favorite film of the year, but rest assured I will never forget this. And also rest assured I will never pull a stunt like this no matter how safe things are. And things are very, very unsafe in this film. But Fall gets my rating of a knockout because I went to the theater expecting to be scared, expecting to be thrilled. And from the movie Fall, that is exactly what I got. But I'm still kind of in awe of people who pull these kinds of stunts. But I guess this movie is maybe a bit of a cautionary tale where should you try this kind of stunt at home, You should probably make sure your bases are covered before stepping onto that ladder and climbing these kinds of heights. But as for me, I'll watch the film, I'll be scared by the film, but I will never do such a thing. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Mac and Rita. This is a body swapping comedy, kind of, and in the sort of vein as Freaky Friday or Big, but not nearly as good as those films in the sense that it is very, very predictable. It is about a, a 30-year-old writer who's played by Elizabeth Lale, and her character's name is Mac. I I think her full name is Mackenzie. I don't quite remember. But she spends a wild bachelor ret weekend in Palm Springs, and she, through a series of circumstances, wakes up to find she has magically transformed into her 70-year-old self. So, as I said, 30-year-old Mac is played by Elizabeth Lale. And 70-year-old Mac, who becomes Rita because she needs an alias, is played by Diane Keaton. Now, the more I see Diane Keaton in modern movies, the more I commend Diane Keaton for still nabbing a lot of starring roles despite her age, because let's face it, A lot of older actors, male actors, get some of these lead roles in movies. There's no shortage of roles out there for actors like Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, and you could probably name a bunch of other actors, but Diane Keaton is one of the few actresses who can still nab a lead role in a movie. Maybe Jane Fonda is another such actress. So I commend Diane Keaton for still staying out there, which is why I wanted to like this film a lot more than I did. And my biggest problem with it was it was so, so very predictable. As a matter of fact, as I was watching the film, I was reminded less of the movie Big and more of the movie within a movie um in the movie funny people in funny people and I'll describe this movie very care uh very briefly because I got to talk more about Mac and Rita but in funny people Adam Sandler plays a comic actor named George Simmons who is I think in terms of his career not a lot unlike Adam Sandler himself he he got his start as a stand-up comedian but lately even though he's gotten very wealthy. His credibility as a comedian has been sort of lost from these big budget, lowbrow films. And there's one film that Adam Sandler's character does in the movie that's called Redo. And you see enough clips of Redo to know exactly what it is. It's Adam Sandler's head um, CGI'd onto a baby's body. And then there's a character whose name is, uh, who's uh, played by Justin Long, who's an adult and he's talking to baby Adam Sandler and he said, you know, you told the wizard that you wanted to be younger. And Adam Sandler as a baby says, I didn't mean this young. And you could sort of tell how the movie is going to go from just that 15 to 30 second clip. You see in funny people. Similarly, you can kind of tell where this is going with this movie. Now the actually Elizabeth Lail's character, Mac, wishes she was 70 because she was very close to her grandmother, which is one of the sweeter moments in this film. And also as she's attending her wild bachelorette party with her best friend, Carla, who's played by Taylor page, who's another actress who's not a household name, but every time she's in a movie, I immediately pay attention because she's going to go places uh, more places than she has already. But anyway, As they're doing their wild bachelorette thing, Mac is looking very fondly at a coffee shop where some older ladies are drinking coffee and just fraternizing. And she actually says, I wish I could be older and be just like that. So she gets into this new age healing booth that's run by a mysterious man who's also very inept, whose name is Luca, who's played by Simon Rex who also has impressed me with his most recent movie choices. And when she gets out of the booth, she's Diane Keaton. So she eventually convinces Carla that she is Mac and tries to assimilate into her life as a 70 year old by befriending Carla's mother, Sharon, who's played by Loretta divine, as well as all of Sharon's older friends who are played by such actresses as Wendy Malick and others. And the way the movie goes, it's it's very, very predictable. At first, I thought it could have been more clever with sort of not only a reference to Big, but also maybe a reference to a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, where you have this 30-year-old who is 70 years old, and she kind of, takes what she knows as a millennial about smartphones and about social media and uses that to her advantage as a 70-year-old. But when Mac herself is an old soul, the movie maybe works, but it's not particularly funny. And what I I wanted to like this film a lot more because every actor in the movie is giving it his or her best, especially her best. I, I love Diane Keaton, as usual. Taylor Page is becoming one of my new favorite actresses. Of course, Elizabeth Lale is trying her best in this movie as well. But then when there's a house sitter who is astonishingly, almost ridiculously good-looking, whose name is Jack, who's played by Dustin Milligan, who I know from his role as the cute veterinarian on the show Shit's Creek. I knew where that uh, story formula was going and everything about this movie is very predictable and very formulaic and overall just not funny, which is why I give Mac and Rita my rating of a very low strikeout. The reason it's not a flunk out is because I give flunk out, which is my lowest rating to movies that just don't really try. And this movie did try me. May- it's it's a little pathetic to give a movie an A for effort, but you can tell that the actors are trying their best. The problem is the script that's written by Madeline Walter and Paul Welsh is very, very predictable. And while I can't recommend Mac and Rita, I don't hate it either. <laughs> Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Vengeance. Vengeance is a film that premiered in theaters on July 29th, 2022, and it's a film to which I am a bit late to the party, but it's a movie that stars, was written by, and directed by, and I think probably produced too, by B.J. Novak who is best known for his role in The Office, but he's also had some other um, acting gigs for which you'd instantly recognize the guy. The guy looks like Seth Meyers' younger brother, and that's not an insult either, because Seth Meyers is a funny guy, and B.J. Novak is a bit more deadpan than Seth Meyers, but it's worked very well for his career so far. Vengeance is not the first project he's directed, but it is his first feature film, which he's directed, and it shows that he has a lot of promise, not only as a director, but as a storyteller. Vengeance is not a perfect film, but it's one that I actually really enjoyed. I liked BJ Novak in it, and I liked a lot of the supporting actors in the movie as well. Just about everyone here did a really great job. It's a movie about a writer from New York city. And this writer writes for The New Yorker. His name is Ben Manalowitz, and he's played by B.J. Novak. And he attempts to solve the murder of a girl he hooked up with. And by hooked up with, I mean had a one-night stand or maybe a couple of flings with. And his liaison with this woman, who ultimately dies has him, through a series of very clever circumstances, traveling down south to investigate the circumstances of her death and discover what happened to her. And one of the twists about Vengeance is it's not just a movie about a fish out of water, and it's also not just a modern sort of noir film. It's also about a guy, and this is close to my heart, about a guy who is putting together a podcast. And he's Putting this podcast together for uh, a woman who works at a public radio station whose name is Eloise, who's played in this movie by Issa Rae, another actress whom I love very much. So BJ Novak, I don't believe has ever been to the South, but he does have ambitions beyond being a writer for The New Yorker, which is already a very prestigious... career to have it's certainly one that even if you don't read the New Yorker New Yorker has such a reputation as a publication that if you write for the New Yorker a lot of people pay attention maybe not in the small town in which Ben Manalowitz visits to try to solve the murder of a young woman by the name of Abilene Shaw who's shown in a lot of previous videos and flashbacks as played by a very beautiful young woman named Leo Tipton. And yeah, seeing her, it's kind of a wonder why anyone would have a one-night stand with her, but I guess that's just the way the movie goes. So, B.J. Novak travels to this small town in Texas, which is about three hours away from Dallas, and he begins to stay and befriend the Shaw family and he learns a lot of great things or very interesting things about Texans in general but also about the Shaw family and there are a lot of parts in this movie that were very funny particularly when Ben is trying to figure out why the Shaw family loves the restaurant Whataburger and they are raving about Whataburger they swear by it and they don't exactly provide a very articulate reason why they love Whataburger but the exchange between B.J. Novak's character and the Shaw family is very funny and also very real and there was also another surprisingly great performance in this film when um, Ben is visiting or interviewing somebody that Abilene knew before she died because Abilene was an aspiring singer songwriter and she eventually became close business partners with a small town record producer named Quentin Sellers who's played in this movie by Ashton Kutcher and I don't believe Ashton Kutcher is a native Texan But in this film, he made me convinced that he was. And also, B.J. Novak, as the sole writer of this movie, gave Quentin Sellers, or rather Ashton Kutcher's character, a lot of really great lines. And Ashton Kutcher turns in what is, I believe, the best performance of his career. And Ashton Kutcher, I think, has had his credibility as, as an actor damaged a little bit from being in the tabloids as much as he has, especially when he was married to Demi Moore and maybe his role on that 70s show as the goofy slacker, as well as his role on Punked, might have also taken away from that credibility as an actor. But I think he has largely redeemed himself in this movie. And it should be noteworthy to note that Ashton Kutcher... And BJ Novak worked together way back in 2003, nearly 20 years ago, when Ashton Kutcher hosted Punk, and BJ Novak actually sort of worked as an actor on Punked, along with Dax Shepard and some other actors. But uh, for Ashton Kutcher to be one of the best actors in this movie was something that really took me by surprise. But he played a role that was very smart and also very. Detailed and articulate. And it's probably one of those performances that to both Ashton Kutcher and BJ Novak's credit, I probably would have seen from a Robert Altman movie, especially one that he did in the 70s, like uh, Nashville or uh, Three uh, Sisters or one of those films. But B.J. Novak certainly has his influences in the right places. I think from watching this film, you can definitely see some Robert Altman influence, as well as some by Jim Jarmusch and Richard Linklater, amongst others. But I think B.J. Novak came off to a relatively rough start where he plays a bombastic New York City writer who's having a conversation with, of all the questionable casting choices in this movie, um, another... New York City party-goer named John, who's played by John Mayer. Why he cast John Mayer into this role, I don't exactly know. This movie could have been better without John Mayer, or basically anybody, any actor, anywhere. But I sort of liked the bombastic conversation the two were having. Maybe the point was that to have this scene where you could sort of tell why B.J. Novak's characters could rub people the wrong way based on uh, the slight arrogance he has. And there's also a conversation later he has with Issa Ray's character where he wants to put together a podcast, but even though he is a smart guy and a writer for The New Yorker, he sounds basically like anybody who is talking about putting together a podcast. He's saying, you know, I want this to be about America and about the American people but and what really divides us. But rest assured, that's probably what about 100 people who want to put together a podcast would say, but maybe that's probably the reflection of the growth of the character of Ben Manalowitz and how he can be condescending and also a bit full of himself. So the more I think about vengeance, the more it works, which is why I give vengeance my rating of a knockout. BJ Novak is one of those... Artists who as an actor definitely had something special and Quentin Tarantino saw it when he included BJ Novak in the movie Inglourious Bastards and the, the people at the office knew they had something special too. But as a director, BJ Novak is off to a very good start. Most of the things that he included in this movie with the exception of John Mayer worked very well, and this is not only a really good deadpan comedy, but it also works especially well as a mystery, and it's one of those mysteries you can instantly get behind, which is why I really enjoyed Vengeance, and I would not be surprised to see Vengeance in the Criterion collection eventually down the road. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Not Okay, which is the latest from Fox Searchlight, which is only found on Hulu. It debuted on Hulu on July 29th, which was the exact same day that the movie, oh, actually, excuse me. It debuted about two weeks before the movie Prey, so it might be overshadowed in hype by Prey, and it's kind of easy to see why. I'm a bit late to the party on Not Okay, but I wanted to review this film because I really liked it. This is a movie that could have crashed and burned from overambition, but it actually did something that, it, it actually sidestepped that sort of plot device where the character is living a lie and benefiting off of that lie until she is exposed for telling that lie. But what I really liked about it was how it sidestepped formula and became far less predictable than it could have been. In addition to the protagonist, not being exactly the likable person who we're usually expected to see, but she has enough sympathy where we're kind of on her side, but we also can see the real damage that she's doing. But it's not unrealistic, and it's also not enough to make us absolutely hate or despise the character. But anyway, Not Okay is a movie about an ambitious young woman who works for a sort of tabloid news site of the new millennium, sort of like Reddit. Her name is Danny, and she's played by Zoe Deutsch. And she finds followers and fame when she poses as the survivor of a deadly attack. But she soon learns that online notoriety comes with a terrible price. This is a movie that has been written and directed by Quinn Shepard. And as an actress, Quinn Shepard has been in many things. But this is her sophomore effort as a director. Before this, she was in a movie that was called, or rather, she directed a movie that was called Blame, in which she not only wrote and directed, but she also starred. Blame is not a movie that I've seen, but based on this film, I kind of want to see it. But Zoe Deutsch is front and center as a woman who is lucky enough to get A job in New York city writing for a major online publication, but she's not satisfied with having her computer in the middle of the office. She wants one of those side offices that the big writers have, which is probably the ambition of just about every, anyone who gets into journalism, whether or not it's writing or broadcast. But she decides to liven up her humdrum life through, by way of social media and also a very misguided crush she has on a social media influencer named Colin who's played in this movie by Dylan O'Brien. Dylan O'Brien is, for lack of a better term, a poser, but he has a huge social media following. And for Danny to get this following or get him to uh, notice her, she decides to take a week off from work and pretend she's taking a vacation in Paris. But things take a turn, for the worst in some ways and for the better in other ways, when there is a terrorist attack in Paris at the Arc de Triomphe. And it's sort of a happy accident or a perfect storm for Danny when she has family members and friends who presume incorrectly that she is in Paris. So she of course is safe, but she has the whole world convinced that she witnessed this terrorist attack and she becomes a bigger deal in her office when she begins to exploit her being in this terrorist attack. Now what she is doing is wrong, especially when she goes to a support group, um, (laughs) under the false pretenses that she was in this attack, but also to get some ideas from actual survivors, including a young high school girl who was actually in a school shooting in North Carolina. Her name is Rowan, and she's played very well in this movie by Mia Isaac. And the two of them form a friendship that is ultimately based on a lie. And the way that this lie begins to unfold is later on in the movie, but the character arc of Danny is particularly realistic, especially considering when the fallout from this lie happens. And maybe there is a bit of a fallout that is a tiny spoiler alert, but what I liked about this film is not only the characters in it, but also... They're really realistic reactions to somebody who is basically living a lie. Maybe it's a little bit too harsh, the fallout from Danny's lie, particularly when there's one, um, podcaster or YouTube, uh, personality who says she's worse than Hitler. And we've talked about Hitler on this show. Worse than Hitler, I wouldn't say. That's a bit of an overstatement, and there are certainly dozens if not hundreds of people who have become internet personalities who have done far worse things than Danny has done in this movie, but the fallout is very similar to the way that, for example, other people who have had public personas, who have lived a lie, like for example, Jesse Smollett is one of the primary examples of that. The fallout is real. Would I say they're worse than Hitler? Eh, maybe not, but it is just the context of the movie, and maybe it is the over-exaggeration that we see sometimes in a lot of these videos where people are very quick to cast the first stone, but maybe the stone isn't the most appropriate weapon, but... At the same time, it doesn't stop other people from picking it up and chucking it. So Not Okay, I really commend for not only its st- sidestepping the formula, but also for keeping its itself grounded in realism. And I just about loved all the characters in this film. And Zoe Deutsch is one of those actresses who has played a Gen Z college student, usually somebody who doesn't have very many cares in the world and is free spirited. And here she plays somebody who is not quite that free spirited very well. And it shows that she has a lot of dimension, a lot more dimension as an actress than we've seen her be in other movies. So not okay is a more than okay movie. It gets my rating of a knockout because I think this movie definitely hits closer to home in terms of the cult of personalities that, our age of social media creates, and I think that Not Okay actually does this a lot better than the movie version of Dear Evan Hansen. Then again, I haven't seen the Broadway version of Dear Evan Hansen, so I can't exactly say for sure if the Broadway version does it better, but Not Okay, rather than being a ripoff of Dear Evan Hansen, I think is grounded more in reality and therefore grounded more in satire than the movie version of Dear Evan Hansen, and it, I enjoyed it actually a lot more more than that film for that reason. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next limited series that I'm going to be reviewing for you is not quite a movie per se, but at a running time of two hours and 42 minutes, it could essentially be a movie. And I am a bit late to the party on this one because this docuseries premiered on Wednesday, July 27th, and it is mid-August as of this show. But I decided to review it for you on this show for two reasons. Number one, it is noteworthy. And number two, the most hated man on the internet, according to this documentary, may not be the most hated man on the internet anymore and may not have been. The most hated man on the internet might be an exaggeration, especially given the recent news about Alex Jones. Because what the subject of this film... um did uh, is bad, but I probably would say that he didn't claim that <laughs> that the Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax, unlike the other person who is unquestionably the most hated man on the internet now, and <laughs> this is uh, the true story, obviously because it's a docuseries, about Hunter Moore who created the website Is Anyone Up? which was not only a pornographic website, but it probably created the term revenge porn. Hunter Moore was probably not the first person to create revenge porn. In fact, I'm pretty sure he, in fact, I'm absolutely sure he wasn't. But he was, with his his controversial website, Is Anyone Up?, the person, or rather, the person who made the term into the public lexicon. And this is the true story about how one devoted mother, Charlotte Laws, after her daughter, Kayla Laws, was exposed on the website Is Anyone Up, tried to bring the website and Hunter Moore himself down. And the the movie is three parts, of course, which are approximately 45 to 60 minutes each. But if this was a movie that was playing in the theaters... I would sit down and I would watch it from beginning to end, and I would not probably want to get up to go to the bathroom. That's how good this docuseries is. It's directed by Rob Miller, who previously directed a short called "The Deal with the Devil and a TV, uh, nine episodes of a TV series called Consciously Incompetent. But he has a future ahead of him as a documentary director, because this film, I guess, has all the right people, in fact, most of the people here, were victims of Is Anyone Up, which is a shameful website that, by its existence, did not make Hunter Moore less popular. But it did get him in trouble with the law, particularly with the FBI. And there is an FBI agent who is interviewed in this movie. His name is Jeff Kirkpatrick, who says that revenge porn is not illegal yet. <laughs> It may be later. I think this is one of those cases where the Supreme Court will decide whether or not revenge porn is something that is protected by the First Amendment or not. However, what's really controversial about Is Anyone Up is this website took photos from people who had posed nude without their permission. And and by took, I mean they hacked them. But what would bring Hunter Moore down is whether or not Hunter Moore himself aided and abetted this hacking because revenge porn, as I said, is not illegal, but hacking is. And there's also the case of defamation and slander of which Hunter Moore was guilty in both cases, not just with the existence of the website, but also with his very bombastic and haughty, um, media appearances, including one episode of Anderson Cooper's talk show back when he had a sort of sit down talk show similar to the show that Ellen DeGeneres used to have and what Kelly Clarkson and Drew Barrymore have right now. But he was definitely flying high with Icarus's wings for metaphorically speaking. But the movie is right to interview I mean, everyone involved in general, except for Hunter Moore. At first, actually, Hunter Moore agreed to be interviewed for this documentary, but he declined at the last minute. But the victims of this movie, particularly Kayla Laws, who was put on this website, and not only were her nude photos plastered on the internet, but Hunter Moore's followers also wrote some terrible terrible things that you should never say to a woman or about a woman, let alone write for her to read. And of course, there are all these Fox News personalities like Greg Gutfield, Gutfeld, who are saying if you didn't want these photos to be posted, you shouldn't have taken a photo of yourself naked. Well, there are a couple things with this. First of all, many of these nudes on this website were not selfies. That would be one thing that... They were actually taken by somebody else. And secondly, there is no excuse for hacking. And there's also no excuse for posting photos that you did not write a clear or sign a clearance to have posted. Now, if they had written that clearance, that would have been one thing. It is a cautionary tale for people who take nude photos, particularly on their smartphone, because just because you have it on your smartphone and just because maybe you post it on social media does not mean it is steel proof. In other words, it doesn't mean that someone else could not steal it. They could because hackers are that sophisticated in this day and age. And there are the black hat hackers who make a living from doing this. And that is really unfortunate But still, that is no excuse to aid and abet hackers to take these photos. So, is Hunter Moore the most hated man on the internet anymore? I would probably doubt it, but that does not (laughs) make him any less hateful than he ultimately is. And what's even more pathetic is that there are a lot of people who see Hunter Moore as a literal god, even to this day. But... This movie is a cautionary tale, both for somebody who aids and abets these kinds of photos, as well as the people who take them as well. But I'm really glad that Hunter Moore got his due justice, and I'm also really glad that this docu series was one of the best Netflix docu series I've seen. Especially with last week me reviewing Trainwreck Woodstock '99, and the most hated man on the internet gets my rating of a knockout. Hunter Moore himself would probably get a flunk out from me, but I absolutely applaud Charlotte Laws and his daughter and her daughter, Kayla Laws, as well as the committed u s attorneys like Wendy Wu and the FBI agents like Jeff Kirkpatrick, who combated this kind of hacking that really does ruin lives. and there are there is a lot of content out there on the internet, but, A lot of this bad stuff does live forever, and it does do deleterious harm to its victims, and that really can't be ignored. Neither should this documentary. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a special, uh, this is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and, if I have time, on streaming. But considering that I have about 10 minutes left in the show, I'm probably going to live it, limit it limited to movies that are out in theaters or are subject to be out in theaters right uh, this coming week. The week of August thirteenth through August eighteenth, 2022. And there is a movie that is actually subject to be released in theaters on August 13th, which is kind of odd because movies don't generally get released on Saturdays. But this movie is The Princess, and it is a documentary. There was a movie that was a Hulu uh, original that came out a couple of months ago starring Joey King. That was an action film. This movie, The Princess, the documentary, is actually about Princess Diana, And this is definitely not the first documentary about Princess Diana, but it's getting some stellar reviews since it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. And in this movie, Princess Diana's story is told exclusively through contemporaneous archive, I don't know how else it would be um, told, creating a bold and immersive narrative of her life and death. It also illuminates how the public's attitude to the monarchy was and still is. So it's not just talking about Princess Diana herself as a princess and as an icon, but it also delves, it seems to delve into a lot more and what her legacy actually means for, I guess, the Royal Crown as well as some other, (laughs) some other people. But this movie apparently has no interviews in it. A lot of the people in the movie who make appearances, uh, make it through archive footage. For example, Princess Diana, as you might imagine, is only through archive footage. I don't know what else uh, she would be because she's dead. But there are also some appearances here by people you would expect like Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth II, Tony Blair, Sarah Ferguson, but also people you might not expect like Hillary Clinton, Henry Kissinger, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa... Colin Powell, Luciano Pavarotti, and this is probably the least expected person who's going to make an appearance in this movie, Clint Eastwood. I don't know what Clint Eastwood has to do with the Royal family, let alone Princess Diana. Did they meet? I don't exactly know. I would imagine that Clint Eastwood wouldn't want to have anything really to do with the Royal family, but he makes an appearance in this film in archive footage. So who knows? But, The Princess is not a movie that I would imagine is coming out in a theater near me, but I'll look out for it because it does sound like an intriguing movie. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters on August 18th, which is a Thursday, is a movie that I would imagine would be in limited release. And this is probably one of those movies that Fathom Events would play. It is Dragon Ball Super Superhero. And no, I did not stutter there, (laughs) I did kind of stutter just a second ago, but no, the movie is called dragon ball, super hyphen superhero. It is a fully animated movie, which as you might expect is about dragon ball or dragon ball Z. I guess it's, uh, for fans of anime and I've, I'm vaguely familiar with dragon ball, but I've never seen a single episode of the show played any of the video games I'm get, I guess I'm familiar with the characters from having seen them on billboards, but that's about it for me. So it's unlikely that I will see this film, but for those of you who are interested, Dragon ball, super superhero is about the red rim army from Goku's past returning with two new androids to challenge him and his friends. So if you are a fan of dragon ball, you'll probably get into this movie but as for me, I'm going to skip this film. But on Friday, August 19th, there are a few films that are going to be or re- subject to be released in theaters. One that is most definitely going to be released in theaters or will be most likely to be released in theaters is a movie that's called Beast. And this is the latest movie starring Idris Elba. And this is a movie about a father played by Idris Elba and his two teenage daughters who find themselves hunted by a massive rogue lion intent on proving that the Savannah has, but one apex predator. So it doesn't really have a very complex plot. It's just Idris Elba protecting his two daughters from a lion. And that's really about it. But South African actor, Charlton Copley, uh, also plays a supporting role in this film. And Idris Elba is an actor who chooses his roles very carefully, with the exception of Cats. He should have been a lot more careful with Cats, but Cats didn't ruin his acting career, and thank God, because otherwise, Idris Elba has made some very good choices when it's come to being in movies. Beast is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on Friday, August 19th is a movie that's called The Immaculate Room. And The Immaculate Room is about um, secrets and private demons that emerge when a seemingly perfect young couple competes for a $5 million prize by isolating themselves in an empty white room for 50 days. No phones, no family only the room trying to break their resolve. I would hope that if they were in a white room for 50 days, that they would have food delivered to them as well as a place to go to the bathroom. Other than that, and maybe even some books to bring with them, I I would probably go crazy in a room with, I mean, maybe I could live without TV, maybe I could live without the internet, maybe I could live without... Uh, furniture, although that's kind of pushing it, but I would really love to have books. And rest assured, if I was just in in a place with books, I would be okay. I wouldn't be able to host this show because I would have nothing to talk about, in addition to the fact that I would not be able to do my show because I wouldn't have this kind of podcasting equipment, but I've oftentimes walked around a Barnes and Noble or a used bookstore and thought to myself, if someone were to lock the doors and not let me out for three days and I had, you know, food and a place to go to the bathroom as well as electricity, and I had no TV and no internet, I would be okay in a place with books. Hell, I would probably read about 10 books before the three days were up. But this movie looks interesting. It's a movie that stars Emile Hirsch and Kate Bosworth and also has a supporting role by M. Emmett Walsh, who is well beyond retirement age but is still acting. And actually, Roger Ebert paid M. Emmett Walsh the ultimate compliment where he declared, Roger Ebert declared, that M. Emmett Walsh and Harry Dean Stanton are the only two actors who he'd see in a movie who are worth seeing just to see them. So I'll see this movie because it has an interesting premise and also M. M. Emmett Walsh co-starring in it is a bonus, but if it's out in the theater near me, I will see it and I will review it for you on next week's show. The last film that is subject to being released in theaters on Friday, August 19th is The Legend of Molly Johnson. And The Legend of Molly Johnson is, as you would imagine, a movie about a woman named Molly Johnson, who in this movie is played by Leah Purcell. And there aren't very many other noteworthy or actors that I know from this movie, but it's a movie that is set in the West. And Molly Johnson is a lonely bush woman who struggles to raise her children and run the family farm while her husband is away. So my guess is, very similar to other westerns I've seen with women in the central role, this movie is about a woman who is protecting her farm and her family from some outlaws. Now, not only does Leah Purcell star in this movie, she also wrote it and she directed it. And Leah Purcell has also been in such TV shows as Wentworth and Redfern Now, But even though her name sounds vaguely familiar, I haven't seen her in very many other films. I guess that she is an Australian actress, but yes, she actually is. She is the youngest of seven children of Aboriginal Australian descent. But I am all for West... Actually, I don't have a favorite genre of movies anymore. People always ask me that. They, When they find out I'm a film critic, they say, not what's my favorite film, because I always have an answer for them with that. But they ask me what my favorite genre is. And the truth is, I don't have a favorite genre anymore. I just like good movies, and it doesn't matter whether they're animated, whether they're romantic comedies, whether they're action, Western, science fiction, it doesn't matter. If the movie tells a solid story and has great acting, then I'm all for it. But The Legend of Molly Johnson might be a movie that's coming out in the theater near me. I don't exactly know, but if it is, I will see it next week and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.